Before we begin, I want to take this opportunity to thank our newest Patreon VIP members. Your support of this podcast makes it all possible. Thank you to Janine H. and Teresa I. for becoming our newest VIP patrons. Special thanks also to Lala O., Stephanie W., Rhea W., and Audrey Y. for becoming VIP All Access members. You are all amazing. Thank you so much. To find out more about each of the levels and the perks you'll receive by becoming a patron of Once Upon a Crime, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Thanks so much. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. As we end this year, and not a second too soon, am I right? I'll be sharing two special episodes this month. This week, I'll bring you not one, but three true crime cases, which I'm calling cases you probably never heard about, but should have. I'm also very excited to have a very special guest helping me out this week to serve as co-host. So let's go now to that conversation. know every December as we come to the close of the year I try to give you something a little different. In the last two episodes this year I'll be welcoming a special guest to help me present and discuss some true crime cases. So this week as a special guest I have Laura in to help me. Welcome Laura. Hi how are you? I'm doing okay. It's the end of the year and I'm kind of running on fumes but I'm excited to talk to you and I think this is going to energize me a little bit more than if I was trying to do it by myself, you know, on what I have left on an energy level of this year. Yeah, no, same here for sure. <laughs> so some of you may know Laura and you maybe just heard her voice and you said, I know that voice. That's because she has had a podcast for several years now called The Fall Line. Um, and you may not also know this, but she also has another podcast called One Strange Thing. So I kind of want to just ask you, Laura, really quickly about both of those projects. So where are you guys at in The Fall Line? Like how long you've been around and where are you at in your seasons? Sure. So um, Brooke and I, who I create the fall line with, we started the fall line about three and a half years ago, actually now. So it's been wild. We just finished up season 11, which was on the victims of Samuel Little. And we covered the Southeastern victims of Samuel Little, who was and is actually the most prolific serial killer known in the United States of America. And we were focusing in on his victims, mostly the unsolved cases, but we also wanted to touch on the solved cases because his victims have gotten very little press in general. Many of them were sex workers, you know, so there just has not been a lot of press on the people who were involved in the cases. That was season 11. We just wrapped. Um, we're on break until January 20th when we're coming back with a new season and series. And I also put out a podcast called One Strange Thing, which is not unsolved cold case true crime like the fall line. One Strange Thing is archival news. And it's this kind of fun little short podcast where we find regional news stories from around the United States that have one unexplainable element in them. And we try and tell the story in under 20 minutes. And it's something I make with the producer of The Fall Line. And it's just a really fun break. I was really interested in this one particular story in Atlanta. We haven't released this yet, but it's about the Atlanta Bleeding House, 
which is this house in Atlanta um, in the late 1980s. This little old couple was sitting in their house in Atlanta and it just started to bleed. Blood started to drip from the walls and it started to come up from the floor um, and they were perturbed. And their son, who called the police, and it was human blood. They tested it. Um, And it was not the couple's blood. It didn't match their blood type. And no, they never figured out where the blood was coming from. Oh, my Um, God. I never heard it. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, they weren't trying to move out. Like, they didn't sue their landlord. Nothing. There was just this house that bled one day. So those kinds of stories. um, I love mysteries. I like the unsolved stuff. So what Laura and I are going to do is we are going to discuss three true crime cases that you haven't heard about, but you probably should have. And I thought it would be a great way to to do it is this format is in a discussion instead of in a, a scripted format like I normally do. We'll take turns presenting. I'll give you a summary. I'm not going to be able to go in depth like I normally do with all of the details, but we're going to give you a pretty good summary so you'll know basically the overview of the case And we're going to discuss some of the elements of that case at the end. The first case comes out of Washington, D.C. area. And this was a a case that happened around the year 2000. There were two students that that were both students at, okay, now I've heard it said two different ways. And I watched some interviews, even of people who were involved in the case. And I've heard Gallaudet University and I've heard Gallaudet University. We will call it GU in case I've uh, mispronounced it. Um, But this is a school in Washington, D.C. It's a a university for the deaf and hard of hearing. There was two murders that happened on the university campus. This is located just five minutes north of the center of Washington, D.C. So it's a small private university, about 2,000 students. The university's website describes it as, quote, the world's only university designed to be barrier-free for the deaf and hard of hearing. So students at at the university live and learn in English and American Sign Language. Now, the neighborhood that the school is located in is kind of in the city. There's somewhat of a high crime area around it, but the campus is a gated community. Parents and teachers and faculty have said that it is a, it's kind of like this oasis in the middle of the city where it's, you know, very safe. Everybody feels very uh, comfortable and safe, and it's like a small community. Both victims that I'll be describing, they both lived on campus in Cogswell Hall, but this happened at two different times. The first student's name was Eric Plunkett. He was 19 years old, and he was from Burnsville, Minnesota. He was uh, born with a congenital illness that resulted in him being born deaf and also with a mild form of cerebral palsy. He was a salutatorian at his high school. The high school he attended was the Minnesota State Academy for the Deaf. He was very excited to go off to university. And uh, when this occurred, he had only been a student at the university for a few weeks. This was in, in September, late September of 2000. On Thursday, September 28, 2000, Eric Plunkett failed to show up for a scheduled tutoring session in the evening. After people asked around, they said no one had seen him in classes all day. A doormate, but not a roommate, Eric had a single room. A doormate named Joseph Mesa reported to their resident advisor that a funny smell was coming from Eric's room. At that point, the resident advisor uses his passkey to let himself into the room after he knocked and, um, and Eric didn't answer. 
He was found on the floor in a pool of blood. It was later determined that he'd been choked and bludgeoned in the head, face, and neck. There was also a chair in the room that the the bottom of it, the legs were had blood on them, so it was used as a weapon. Detectives would call the killing a case of overkill. He'd been dead for at least 24 hours. Um, Dormates said they had witnessed Thomas Minch and Eric arguing. This was another student that lived in the dorm. Later, it would also be determined that Eric's wallet was missing and someone had attempted to use his ATM card after his death, but this would not be found out right away. The detectives didn't discover this before they accused Minch. And the reason why they accused Minch is, like I said, they other students said, we saw Eric and Thomas Minch together. They seemed to be having an argument. So they call him in. When they brought him in, he did admit to having been in an argument either earlier that day or the day before um, that Eric was murdered. He said that Eric had made a pass at him, which he did not uh, welcome. He said, I'm fr- I was friends with him, but I wasn't romantically interested in him. And he said he had pushed him away. He said he wasn't interested, but Eric was persistent. Minch got angry and he pushed him, knocking him down. So this is what Thomas Minch told the detectives. At this point, they thought he's our main suspect. Yeah. So um, because like, again, they thought it seemed personal. So five days after Eric Plunkett's body was discovered, the D.C. police arrested Minch for second degree murder. But the following day, he would be released after prosecutors determined that there was not enough evidence to hold him. But he was not cleared as a suspect. He returned to New Hampshire. He said, I basically lost my friends. I just derailed my education. It was, you know, pretty big blow. And the student body still believed he was the murderer. So they were all kind of, you know, how to a sigh of relief when he moved away because they still believed he was guilty. They just didn't have enough evidence. This is what the student body believed. But they tried to get back to normal. And then the campus was hit again. On February 3rd, 2001, a second student named Benjamin Varner was found also in his room and he had been murdered. I'll tell you a little bit about Ben Varner. He was also 19 years old. He was also a freshman. He was from San Antonio, Texas. He had only been at the school for that first year. So what happened the day on February 3rd, a fire alarm got pulled uh, for some reason. I'm not sure if it was just a test or somebody pulled the fire alarm or something else happening. But of course, everybody vacates the building. Well, he wasn't counted among the people who had vacated the building. And this is this is one of these little details that I don't know why they bother me, but the same resident advisor that found Eric Plunkett also led himself into Ben Varner's room and discovered Ben Varner, Varner dead. I mean, this poor guy, right? I mean, that's so traumatizing. Yeah. And he also got pretty grilled because they're like, wait a minute, this same guy found both. You know, so later on, he was even a suspect. In this, the second murder, there was a little bit more evidence for them to go on. Ben had been stabbed, and it was a pretty brutal stabbing. There were bloody footprints discovered leading out of the room and down the hall. And they were able to to find what kind of shoes. And I don't didn't say what size. I don't think they could tell size because they weren't, you know, full footprints. Mm-hmm. But they could tell by the in the pattern, what kind of shoe it was. Ben's wallet was also missing. Now, right away, what they did is they called the FBI in for help 
because this is now a second murder. So you have the FBI and the D.C. police now working on both of these murders. They did a search of the campus in a nearby dumpster. They found a coat with bloodstains and the knife was in the pocket of this coat. So that was a lucky break to find that evidence. Here's another unbelievable kind of point in this story. Thomas Minch had just come back into town. He had moved to New Hampshire, but you know he was the one who was believed to be the suspect in the first murder. He had just come back into town to give a deposition and also to talk to a lawyer on the weekend that Ben Varner was found murdered. So he was there. Yes, he was there on the oh. campus and in the area that, that weekend. Talk about an unlucky break for this poor guy, right? But he did have a solid alibi. His DNA was also taken and compared because they found DNA that wasn't that didn't belong to Ben Varner um, at the crime scene, and Thomas Minch's DNA was not a match. So that was a good good thing for for him. Um, so now investigators took a second look at Eric Plunkett's murder because they're wondering now: Do we have like a serial killer on our What is going on here? This is when they discovered that Eric Plunkett also had the missing wallet. And then they also went back and looked at bank records and found that it, there was a attempted ATM withdrawal that had happened the day after Eric Plunkett's body was found. So they found a checkbook was missing from Ben Varner's room. Now they're able to basically follow a, a financial trail. Bank records showed a check for $650 was cashed on February 2nd. So basically it was in from that checkbook, there was a check made out to cash for 650 bucks. They knew that he had missed an appointment that day and it was believed that he was murdered that evening before. So if the check had gotten to the bank to try to be cashed the day after, of course, that had to be not Van Barner. So investigators asked the bank for surveillance videos for the day that the check was presented. Meanwhile, while they're trying to get those videos, because you know that usually takes some time, a student in that same dormitory saw the photograph because I guess the investigators had put out a picture of the coat that was found to see if anybody recognized it. So a student that was that lived in the dorm saw that photograph of the bloody coat and he contacted police to say that his roommate had a coat like that. And his roommate's name was Joseph Mesa Jr., Joseph Mesa was the one who said, I haven't seen him, and I, there's a smell coming from his room. He's the one huh. that, that alerted the RA. So right when they're starting to say, okay, we need to talk to Joseph Mesa, videos came back from the bank and identified Mesa as the person who cashed Ben Barter's check. So now he's connected to both of these murders. So the bloody shoe prints that were found were from a Nike Air Max shoe. Mesa did own a pair. And finally, the linchpin was that DNA evidence would connect Mesa to Ben Barner's murder. So he was arrested on February 13th. So just a couple weeks after the second murder, he would at first uh, proclaim that he was innocent. But after he talked to him, he went and met with his girlfriend. And after talking to her, he came back with her and confessed and said that he, he was responsible. He told investigators he'd gone to Eric's room to rob him. And he said he chose Eric because physically he was more vulnerable. He described how he came up behind Eric as he sat in his computer, which is which was strange. What I got from this is that Joseph Mesa was friends with both of these young men. And they you know, hung out with him. They borrowed things from each other. They were dorm mates, right? So they knew each other. One of the things that Eric Plunkett had on his computer, he had a mirrors, like little mirrors connected because of course he can't hear if somebody's coming in, you know, coming behind him. So if somebody comes in the door, he could see who was coming in. So I'm thinking that Joseph Mesa comes in, he had to know 
that he came in and probably didn't think anything of it because he knows this guy and he's in and out of his room all the time. And, you know, at this point, he said that he basically put an arm around him and choked him to incapacitate him. This is the part that, you know, we'll talk about later, because I think there's something here. If he was coming in to rob him and he incapacitates him, they said, well, why did you kill him? And he said, because I didn't want him to tell on me. I didn't want to get in trouble. But the overkill thing. That's the thing. And I want to talk, talk about that a little bit at the end, because it just seems like it was too much. You know, he knows this guy's obviously he's not fighting him, but he continues to to batter him to death. Then when they get to the trial, Mesa tries to claim that he is suffering from mental illness. He now says that his, quote, black gloved hands told him to kill. He said that these black hands belong to WWE wrestling star known as the Undertaker, and they told him what to do. So, of course, you know, it's a mental illness defense that he's saying that he was not in his right mind. He was then committed to a psychiatric hospital for four months and, you know, assessed over those four months, which is quite a long time. Usually it's, what, a few weeks or maybe? In the cases that I've researched, it doesn't seem like it's been that long. It does seem like a long time. Yeah. But he would later be deemed, deemed fit to stand trial. A little bit more about Mesa. So Joseph Mesa was also deaf, attending GU. He was also an athlete in high school. He was a competitive wrestler. He was a bigger guy than both of the other two um, that were his victims. It appears he had a normal home life as a child. He lived in a two-parent home. He grew up in Guam. Um, and then moved to the U.S. He admitted to the psychiatrist as a young boy that he would kill animals. And the psychiatrist said that he appeared to recall this fondly. Like it was, so that right there is one of those, those things we talk about, serial killers in the making, right? Um, as far as the other two, the fire setting and bedwetting, I did not see that as part of it. But I mean, that's problematic and uh, you know, horrifying enough, I think. He did suffer from academic problems in school, but he had good relationships. Like I said, he had friends. He had a long-term close relationship with his girlfriend, whose name was Melanie de Guzman, and he was with her at the time. But there had already been problems with Mesa on the campus. He had stolen from another student a year earlier, taking a, a roommate's ATM card and draining his account of over $3,000. When he was questioned, he confessed, and he was suspended from school for a year. He had just recently returned when these murders happened. He told the um, evaluator that he, he had been involved with a criminal gang in Guam and said that he had witnessed killings. I don't know if that's true. And this is just his own reporting. The hospital psychiatrist would report that Mesa showed no remorse over any of his bad acts up to and including murder. He would report to the court calling Mesa, quote, a psychopathic serial killer in the making, end quote. Trial began in May of 2002. Again, the defense tried to claim that he was suffering from mental illness, but the prosecution produced evidence that he had written letters to his girlfriend while he was awaiting trial, saying that he, quote, planned to fake insanity. And these letters were recovered during a search of his room. Also, portions of Mesa's three and a half hour video statement were entered into evidence, which I watched a little bit of it. He shows absolutely no remorse. He's acting out what he did, which is to me is always problematic when they do that. It's almost like they're reliving it. And there's something just really kind of chilling about that. 
He was found guilty on 15 counts, including two counts of first-degree murder. The other counts were burglary, robbery, forgery, those types of things were added. And this sentence was like, I don't know if I've heard of a sentence, you know, this serious. He was sentenced to six life terms plus 90 years. How do you get more than what, I mean, I would think two life terms, I mean, I don't know exactly how that works because I thought that it would be for each murder would be one life term. But every state is so different. I mean, I've seen people sentenced to multiple life terms. It's just is state. that fair though? Because I don't remember hearing that very often. I I wouldn't say that I've heard it often, but I will say that I have seen it where someone will get like you know like I he was sentenced to three or four or five life sentences. It may have to do with how long they determine a life sentence to be. Mm. Like perhaps their life sentence is like twenty five years and not like life life. Oh yeah, right. I am not a legal eagle, my friend, so <laughs> I could be way off here, but that would be my guess. If I was to guess, we may want to give our friend Jillian at Core Junkie a call on that one. Yeah. Some of the things uh, about this case that stood out to me when I learned about it were the fact that not only was two students from this uh, college and also a deaf community because they do consider themselves a deaf community in this college. The victims were both from this community, but also the perpetrator was. I'm reading some of the news articles at the time that came out about this case that they interviewed students, teachers, faculty. Many said that they were shocked that a deaf student was the murderer of the other deaf students. Like this was something they didn't they really thought it had be somebody from the outside. Like I said, it was a very small community. It wasn't a large campus. It wasn't, you know, thousands of students. So they were pretty shocked by that. Reading some of the articles of how people presented this, I was struck by kind of the commentary, you know, like in articles, kind of this bit towards a stereotype of people with disabilities as being gentle or non-threatening. And so that was throwing off people who maybe weren't as knowledgeable, educated about this community. And I thought, well, maybe it's different for us, Laura, because we research all kinds of crimes and all kinds of criminals. And we know there's not one definition of what a a killer, a perpetrator, a, you know, a victim looks like. They come from all walks of life on both ends. So that kind of was interesting to me to read about. Um, Did that surprise you at all or is that? Yeah, I mean, that's like that kind of paternalistic view, right? And I'm guessing you're talking about people who were like the reporters and the people looking in from the outside, probably trying to make sense of how the community was reacting. And the community reaction was really different because they're reacting to a sense of being part of a really close-knit community and having the sense of people with whom they have built something, right? People who they're with every day, people who they share um, a lot of deep cultural connections. It's really hard to imagine someone within that group then, you know, hurting somebody else, right? Or hurting several people. And then I can imagine people from the outside having this paternalistic view and saying, oh, see, it's hard for them to ever imagine one of them hurting someone else. It's paternalistic, right? And it's you know, and it's just reinforcing all the kinds of stereotypes that come with that. And I think that we tend to think about negative stereotypes being stereotypes associated with like violence and aggression. Mm-hmm. 
but I think the stereotypes that are associated with this kind of stuff too, right? Stuff that infantilizes people and stuff that says, you know, this person is gentle and innocent and childlike is just as dangerous. And so that's interesting that you saw that in the reporting. I think I kind of took it from the point of view of the schools I've gone to have always been small campuses. And so I thought, what if it, that happened where I was, you know, when I went to Holy Names, which is very, very small, or when I went to Santa Clara U, which is also very small. It, yeah, it would be very shocking, especially to find out one student randomly murdered two other students. It wasn't a stranger. It wasn't somebody from the outside. It wasn't somebody who they'd never met. So I just took it that way. But so when I kind of read into it and I'm like, oh, is this what they're saying? (laughs) That they think it's about this? I just thought it was more about, like you said, that this is, this is our community. This is weird because this happened in our, within our community. The other thing that came out in some of this reporting was the, the relationship between Eric and Thomas Minch. Thomas Minch said that Plunkett made a pass at him. Investigators jumped to a conclusion that he was targeted because he was gay. I know they have to look at everything and kind of see if there's anything that plays into what occurred. But the fact that that was really latched onto very quickly and Thomas Minch was latched onto as a suspect very quickly because he right up front admitted, this is what happened. I didn't react to it well. And we got in an argument and yeah, I kind of pushed him and he kind of fell, but it wasn't something that he was trying to hide at all. He was straight up about it, but they're like, aha, you know, that kind of um, idea. Again, in the reporting, it seemed like that was made a bigger deal of. This would have been like kind of still in the deep weeds of the gay panic defense, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking about like the mid, late nineties, early two thousands. I'm thinking about like, you remember the Jenny Jones trial probably. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if law enforcement also hooked right onto that as well. Like, you know, that really, I mean, we're not even just talking about internalized homophobia, the externalized homophobia, that idea that if a man made a pass at you, of course you would kill him. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there's not that underlying homophobia. Right, because that, there, there was that, right, that was out in the news at the time. There were some cases like that, that that was becoming a, like a defense people were using. I didn't think about that. Again, putting the in my time into context that it's, it's possible that you're right. They jumped to that because this had already been something that had come out in other cases. So that's possible. And that they would just assume like a level of homophobia that would lead to that, you know? Right. Yeah. Thomas Mitch actually later sued the police department for $2 million um, for false arrest. And like I said, before he said his education and his life had been disrupted by these allegations, he remained under suspicion for months. Didn't go back to the campus, you know, went home. It really kind of derailed his life. So that was very unfortunate. So my thing always is like motive. <laughs> you know, I kind of get deep into the motive. I'm wondering about the, the words that the psychiatrist said. That, and I wonder, was Mason tracked to becoming a serial killer? It kind of looks, seems to me like he was. He had, like I said, the history of animal abuse, the lack of remorse. And like I said, he also appeared to enjoy giving these details of the murders, even acting them out at the time. The fact that he'd been friends with both of these guys. There's some things that stick out to me as 
pretty extra. You know, like you murder somebody, you think you try to distance yourself, you try to lay low, you do all these things. He really kind of put himself right in the middle of everything. First of all, he was on report that Eric's not answering his door or whatever. He was the first one. Like almost like he couldn't wait for it to be discovered. He'd even written to Eric Plunkett's family in the days after the murder to tell him how sorry he was and to say, you know, I had a DVD that he loaned me and returned it to them. Well, maybe it was some remorse, but the parents talk about this and they said it didn't seem that way. But one thing that occurs to me is that perhaps he was trying to exert some control in the narrative Mm. because he wants the body discovered when he wants the body discovered, you know, inserting himself into it. He inserts himself into discussing it with the family. He inserts himself into it. Seeing their reaction to him is going to tell him if he's a suspect or not. He even admitted that Ben Varner had often lent him things. One of the things he said about Ben Varner is that he was such a nice guy. Like he did, he helped everybody out. Um, He had even given Mesa money to buy his family and his girlfriend Christmas gifts just weeks before this murder. So that he's going to go rob him when the guy probably would have lent him the money. It, and it doesn't make any sense. I think the overkill thing really bothers me if he was just trying to you know, kill him because he didn't want witnesses. But then if you don't want witnesses to a robbery, you could go in when he's not there. So it seemed like it was as an escalation for some reason. It all has this element to me of power and control. Because like you said, he was able to rob his own roommate and you know rack up $3,000 on his card. But in both cases, the first case, he picked someone that he knew he could physically overpower, right? In the second case, he picked someone that he felt he owed something to, right? Because this guy, the guy had given him money. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In both cases, it seemed like he's exerting power. He then decides when the body is discovered. He contacts the victim's family. That all reads of a weird power thing to me. Mm-hmm. Now, do I have any expertise? I do not. <laughs> However, yeah. it all just has this weird power control thing yeah. to me, you know? I do think that one of the reasons he got such a lengthy sentence is because people were really convinced that, and this is something the prosecutor said, is if he ever gets out, he will kill again. I thoroughly believe that. I mean, just oh, yeah. the, the way that these murders were committed and, like I said, lack of remorse trying to find a way to say this was, oh, mental illness and, and end up you know, not being held responsible, criminally responsible. I mean, all of those things kind of led them to, to believe. He's, he's very dangerous. He's, da- he's a dangerous society and he, he really should never get out. So luckily he was caught quickly. I mean, yeah. obviously he was not the master criminal. He leaves, you know, footprints and takes the check to the bank and you know, all of these things. I don't think that was the... That was the motive. I think the motive was just killing. I mean, yeah, was, I mean, five months in between the murders, that is not a long period of time. One of the things I think they pointed out was is that he had this close relationship with his girlfriend. One of the other things that they tried to use at trial was um, his girlfriend would later claim that, or his defense, I guess, would later claim that his girlfriend was his common-law wife to preclude her from testifying against him in court. Um, she remained supportive of him after the rest. And it was kind of like the Ted Bundy, you know, he had the long-term girlfriends, but yet he was doing these things that she was not aware of. But she stood by him afterwards, even knowing what he did and he confessing to it. 
we're going to go ahead and switch gears now. And you were going to discuss a case. Is this one that you have already, you had already researched or done on your show? Yeah, this is a case I wanted to bring to your audience. Um, if your audience doesn't listen to the fall line, then they probably aren't used to how we do things, but we only do unsolved stuff. So I know that's a little bit of a cheat on Once Upon a Crime, <laughs> but it's something we really like to do is to try and amplify unsolved crimes that really need attention. And I know that when you came to me and you asked me to do this with you, you were really interested in doing a case of a missing or murdered indigenous woman or girl. So that's what I wanted to bring to you was one of those cases that we had covered. Mm -hmm. And we cover cases from the Southeastern United States in general. Um, We are doing a national series next year, but otherwise that's what we do. And this is the case of a little girl named Brittany Locklear. And she lived in Hope County, North Carolina although her family is from an area called Robeson County. Now, you have to say it real fast. It looks like Robeson, if people have ever seen it, but it's pronounced Robeson. It's one of those Southern things where things are spelled one way and said another way. And Robeson is a town called Lumberton. And that is sort of the major crux of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. And they live in three or four counties in the surrounding area. The Lumbee tribe of North Carolina and that's their official name, are a state-recognized tribe, but not a federally-recognized tribe. Here's why that matters. When you hear statistics about missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, two-spirit people, boys, men, what you're hearing are federal statistics. Mm-hmm. So the government is only going to be gathering numbers on tribes that are federally recognized. And most of the tribes that are federally recognized are actually going to be further west than the south. And there's going to be a couple, you know, some tribes up north. And we do have a few tribes in the southeast that are federally recognized. You know, there are a few, but not not nearly as many. So we have more state recognized tribes here. The whole background on that, like, is very complex, but it has to do with land rights. It has to do with, like, you know, um, federal aid. It has to do with whether or not you can have a reservation, You know, it has to do with like what you can build on land. The Lumbee don't have that recognition. So if a Lumbee woman or girl is murdered, she's not going to get put down in that count, right? Mm -hmm. But even more so, there's not a, a, a really strong law enforcement recognition outside of areas where there are high indigenous populations, which is going to be places like Cherokee, you know, or like Lumberton, there's a few areas. Outside of those areas, there's not a real sense from law enforcement that we have an indigenous population in the Southeast, right? Um, And so if someone is found murdered or dead, you have a decedent, a lot of times they may be misclassified racially. Mm -hmm. So they may be marked down as Asian or Hispanic or sometimes white, and then they are less likely to be identified by family members, especially if there's no forensic art that's done. So that's another thing. Um, There are people that are working to build different databases. There's a really, really cool group called the Sovereign Bodies Institute. And this is a group that's entirely run by indigenous scholars. And they're building their own database. It's a private database. They keep all the information. But they're um, inputting everyone. So like when I get stuff, I send it to them in case it's something they don't have. And they are building up everything to include people who are from tribes that aren't federally recognized. Okay. So they have one 
database. Yeah, they're building it up, you know, because and especially like, you know, people don't realize that many, many, many indigenous people are not living on reservations. They're living in cities, you know, the, you know, the majority population are. Mm -hmm. And so if just the way that people are spread out and how things are reported, Mm -hmm. you know, and like whether or not, um, you know, the reporting officer in New York City is going to have the proper information on someone who was Mohawk and they're going to recognize that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just complex stuff. Right. So, Mm -hmm. But in Lumberton um, and in the surrounding counties like Hoke, there is a significant indigenous population, about 12%, which is quite significant for the South. Right. So this is in 1998. And, you know, that's just a few years after John Bonet, who I think was 1996, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. And just a few years after Polly Class Mm -hmm. um, and when Brittany Ann Locklear is first abducted from her bus stop in January, and then is later found dead. And she had just moved to the area with her family. She was living with her mother and her stepfather and her baby sister. Her stepfather is really her father. He raised her from the time she was a baby. And when they moved to Hope County, they didn't have as much community there. His, his family lived there and they had their church and she just started school, but they didn't have like the strong support system that they had back home. Mm-hmm. They didn't know they're across the street neighbors very well. You know, they're in this rural area. All this is important. So it's January. Brittany's enrolled in kindergarten. And so her mom, whose name was Connie, takes her outside to the bus stop. And she waits with her there every single day because Brittany's very small. She's a little kindergartner. She's wearing her little red jacket and her white coveralls. And she realizes, Connie does, that she really needs to go to the bathroom. And she's holding the baby, Brianna, who's about 18 months old. So she looks up and down the street. She sees other kids waiting at the next bus stop. You know, it's a rural road, but you can see down, you know, about half the mile down the street. So she runs inside really quickly to use the bathroom. But just in case, she says goodbye to Brittany and says, I love you. And Brittany says, I love you too. When she comes back out, Brittany's gone. So she assumes the bus has come. Steps back inside and her across the street neighbor comes and knocks on the window of their trailer and says, something happened to Brittany. A truck pulled up next to her. And my wife saw it from the kitchen window. And when that truck pulled off, Brittany was gone. And of course, you know, Connie's heart just Mm -hmm. fell into her stomach. And she ran down to her mother-in-law's house and handed her the baby because it was freezing outside. And she hopped in her car, drove to the school just to make sure she wasn't on the school bus. You know, she had the neighbor calling the police, drove to the police station and indeed, Brittany never made it on the bus. She disappeared. Mm. Later on, they had a couple of different reports about this truck. Um, It was maybe tan, maybe brown, maybe white. Probably a white man driving, but he may have been indigenous. He may have been black. They got different reports from, yeah, it's because they had little kids up the street. Mm. And then they had a woman who was all the way across the street in a trailer inside of a window, you know. So no one got like a great look. To the credit of this very small town county sheriff, you know, because this is this is a small area, they immediately put out, you know, all the bulletins that they could. But this was years before the Amber Alert, so there was no Amber Alert to put out. I was going to say, so far, it reminds me of the Amber Schwartzman case. It's almost it does. Kind of same. 
Yeah. They call in for help from other stations, right? And other local rural sheriff's offices and everyone begins searching. Um, And of course, Connie has gotten her husband and she's gotten her in-laws and her family is driving up the ones that can from out of town to help. And you can't even imagine what kind of state she's in Mm -hmm. because she's thinking if she hadn't gone to the bathroom, which is a completely normal thing for a person to do. They search all day and all night until it's freezing and dark outside. Um, And they find her book bag. And then later on, they find her little overalls. But they don't find her. The next morning, the search parties are back out again. And they do find Brittany at that point. And they find her on a country road. It's a road that's not often used. So it's not going to be a road that someone who is unfamiliar with the area would take. It's like a side road and it's down this side road. It'd be like what you might call a farm road mm-hmm. and down this farm road in this sort of drainage area. Um, Brittany's found in a puddle and she's been drowned there and she has been assaulted as well. Sexually assaulted. This is of course, absolutely horrifying and it's heartbreaking for everyone. The family is in shock, but they go right into the police station and they take polygraphs right away and they all pass. I mean, polygraphs, we all know about polygraphs, but Connie, it was important to her to go ahead and question, get me out of the way because I want you to find out who did this to my child. They're not focusing in the wrong area. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of different funeral events that are happening at the same time as the search is going on. Um, after Brittany's autopsy is done. And they ended up having the biggest um, funeral and memorial service that had ever been seen in the area. They had to have it at the high school gym. Wow. Fit everyone that came in. And like people, you know, were flying in and coming in from all over. And little kids were all there and brought flowers. There were thousands of people, like more than lived in the area. People drove in for it, you know. And so many tips were coming in that the local sheriff actually couldn't handle them. And that was one of their big regrets because they felt like some stuff slipped through. The FBI came in to assist, but it took a couple of months for them to get the computer equipment that would really help them keep track of all those tips. Mm -hmm. So they kind of worried that some stuff perhaps, you know, went to the wayside. One thing that they did at this point was they got that truck they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So they decide that they're going to set up a roadblock to try and find this truck. At the time, they're looking for a white or tan or possibly brown truck, right? It's like every truck in the county. Yeah. Um, But the sheriff announces it on the news that there's going to be this roadblock. Um, And Connie, to this day, isn't sure. We, We interviewed her. We went down to her house and talked to her. She, to this day, isn't sure why that was done. I kind of suspect that the FBI had him do that they had some reason behind him doing it because they were in town at that point. I'm not sure what their reasoning was. They were developing their profile at that point and they did release it later. Um, And I have it written down. They would try to alter it in some way or. I think that they were trying to push someone to do something. Um, And I think that may have actually happened. They released the profile and it said that, Family and friends should look out for someone who had been recently exhibiting paranoia, irritability, sudden changes in appearance, and sudden cleaning of car. They didn't find anybody. But 
as we were working on this story, um, and we told this to Connie too, um, a listener actually got in contact with us from this area and wrote in to tell us something strange that happened around the time of Brittany's death. And it was that someone that this listener worked with who had a brown full-size pickup truck had driven out to the beach and had died by suicide Hmm. um, that same month, shortly after the murder, just after the roadblock, um, right after the sheriff had announced it. So Hmm. we asked the listener to call the sheriff's office and give Hmm. them that information. And so then we, we also gave the sheriff's office a call to make sure that that was passed along. Mm-hmm. as well and we told connie as well and she said she hadn't heard that one but she had heard of a few other things that were strange people you know getting rid of cars or other mm-hmm. odd things but you always have to ask yourself is it guilt or is it boy i have a brown truck that doesn't look good mm-hmm. you know the entire city's looking for a brown truck right they're questioning people all over town. They have a number of suspects. Um, they're giving polygraphs to half the town. Mm-hmm. At one point, there is a man that molests a little girl at a bus stop, but they're actually able to rule him out with DNA. And that is when it's found out that they have DNA. Up until that point, the sheriff has been really tight-lipped. Um, and there's been really very little information released. And I think it's because they're trying to protect the integrity of the case. You know, this is still quite early on, but they're able to rule him out. And that's how they find out that there is DNA of the suspect in the case. This was in late January. And by February, it had been scaled back. And by March, they were in election for a new sheriff. And the sheriff's race... Brittany's murder was a big point in the election and solving Brittany's murder kind of became the point of like, I will solve this murder, elect me. The sheriff who was elected made that part of his platform. And he was also actually the first black sheriff ever elected in Hope County. And that's a major thing because this is Klan territory, which is something that Connie pointed out to me. And the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina actually has a lot of really famous history with the Ku Klux Klan and mm-hmm. that they actually successfully drove the Klan out of Lumberton mm-hmm. um, at one point, like successfully got beat the Klan out of Lumberton, which hasn't happened often. But there's a there's actually even a Wikipedia page about it. Like mm-hmm. there's a pretty good write up. If you want to read more um, about the Lumbee, I'll give you guys some books at the end yeah. that are really interesting. But Sheriff Davis ran on this and Connie was really, really hopeful that this was going to make a big difference. But unfortunately, Sheriff Davis and the outgoing sheriff's name was Bird. Sheriff Davis, his focus was the family. He really felt strongly that someone in the family had killed Brittany. Hmm. Why did he go that way? We really don't know because he's been unwilling to speak to reporters Um, And he only served one term as sheriff because he was quite unpopular. And I think part of the reason was the focus on the family Mm -hmm. because they had all been cleared, um, not only by polygraphs, but by a number of other items. No one else in law enforcement felt that they had anything to do with it. If you were to ask me my personal opinion, there's not a doubt in my mind that every person in that family is innocent. It was such a short window of opportunity to grab her. It seems like it was totally either random or it was, you know, somebody in the area had seen her standing out there. But her mother was almost always with her. I really think it's someone who knew them by sight, Mm -hmm. right, was familiar with them, probably drove that road all the time 
and took a chance because Connie wasn't there. You know, he seemed to really be focusing in on um, Connie's husband's father, who was an elderly man and quite infirm and was also, you know, when Connie ran to her mother-in-law's house to give the baby to them to watch was home mm-hmm. and certainly not off kidnapping his step-granddaughter, but the sheriff really did focus in on them in a way that Connie found very upsetting. She told us that he showed them autopsy photos and he he kept bringing them in for questioning. He yeah. said they would arrest them and we couldn't get his side of it because he declines to speak to reporters, podcasters, et cetera. But there was a lot of news coverage around the time and a lot of letters to the editor from people living in Hope County who were really unhappy with the way that they were being treated. So at one point, the sheriff even called a press conference about the case and said that he had new information, but he didn't have any new information. Connie showed up and shut it down. And after that, he did lose re-election and a third sheriff came on. So we're on our third sheriff on the case in, you know, a, a very short number of years. The new sheriff, whose name is Peterkin, he actually gets along really well with the family. And they've been really happy with his attention to the case. They have now some SBI agents on the case as well. And that's the State Bureau of Investigation in North Carolina. Something major did happen during this time. And I keep coming back to it and I just keep thinking about it. And this is something we can talk more about later, but there is um, a firefighter and this was around 2003. And I believe his last name is pronounced um, laundry, but it's one of those names. It's like a Louisiana name. And I'm the, I'm very poor on my track record of pronouncing Louisiana names. He's a firefighter in the area and he actually was found among having some other issues happening legally. He had a picture of Brittany in his locker at the fire station, but they did DNA testing on him and they said they ruled him out. And that was the last real lead. There was a few other things about him that made him a suspect. I I want to say that he had some other sexual assault charges pending. I'll check my notes on that in a second when we get there. But that was one of those leads where they really felt like the case was going to be solved. But that was pretty much it. After that, the case has been really cold. I mean, the SBI checks in with Connie and the sheriff checks in with Connie. But the reason that I really wanted to bring this one to your listeners today is that Connie has felt this incredible frustration that she had this little five-year-old go missing, be abducted, you know, and be murdered in 1998 at the height of really the stranger danger focus in the United States when kids' faces were splashed across the television. You know, she contacted everyone. She contacted America's Most Wanted. They contacted Montel. She wrote to every television news outlet. She could not get any coverage for Britney. You know, she could barely get her own local television, um, much less outside of North Carolina. And it's just been so frustrating for her that she'll do anything any piece of coverage, but it tears her up inside every single time to do it. Right. You know, and the fact that her little girl's picture, and she has that picture of of her that's haunting, and this beautiful pink dress with her curly hair looking off to the side that is just like any of the other girls that you see that has been splashed across your memory. You know, like, I can see Madeline McCann in my head. Mm -hmm. I can see John Bonet in my head. 
but people can't see girls like Asia Degree or like Brittany Locklear in their heads because we don't get fed them by the media because the media assumes we don't want to see them. That leaves people like Connie Chavis going, why can't America see my child? If somebody saw her, maybe they would know something. You know, maybe there was someone who was in town for a week doing some work who has some information. And if they could just see this and know about it, then they could share it. And there is a reward. There's a $20,000 reward in the case, you know, and I'll, at the end, I will give the info on that just in case somebody listening has anything they want to share. Do you have any favorite theory of what you think likely happened? I think it's someone from the area. And because they were new to the area, um, I don't know if it's someone that necessarily knew them personally, but I do think it's someone that knew them by sight. Um, And I think it's someone that had driven by before and had probably thought about taking Brittany before because the swiftness with which he took Brittany leads me to believe that it's something that they thought about doing before. Right. Um, obviously someone in the area because of that farm road is just really difficult to access. Like we drove around there. Like it's like, if you didn't know where it was at the time, I believe it's gone now, but if you didn't know where it was at the time, like you're not going down that road, why they didn't find this person. I don't know. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with just like the number of trucks and like the, I mean, white, brown or tan, you know, we're not having a clear racial description. on um, the person of interest and especially because there is a fairly diverse community there, you know, so it really could, I mean, there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of men that could have fit, you know, a description of a man who's either white, black, or indigenous. Did they find any tire tracks in the area where they found her body? I don't have that in my file. So I'm not sure. Like I have some of the, some police files, but I really was working mostly from autopsy files and from the family's reports. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not sure about the tire tracks. If they did, they didn't release the information about them. I do know that the FBI did a fair amount of work on this case. So it sounds like they exhausted whatever they did find at that point. I think they're waiting. I think they're just waiting for that DNA hit, you Mm -hmm. know? They're waiting for someone to reoffend. Well, that's the thing I was going to say. Somebody who does something like that, wouldn't you imagine that that wouldn't be the last time they would do that? Unless, like you said, like somebody is dead or in jail, right? It's, it's interesting. So on another case, I won't say what case it was, but I talked to a profiler about another case that we covered. And they thought in this particular case that we covered that the offender had probably only offended the one time because it was too hot. Do you know what I mean? Like too dangerous. Yeah, and if you're local. Yeah, if you're local and you had to stay in the area, if you had like, because these are these are people that have lived in areas for generations, you know, mm-hmm. Connie being the exception, but they had only moved, you know, not so far and they moved because her husband's family lived there and had lived there for, you know, quite a long time. Let me, before I forget, give phone numbers okay. for your listeners. So there is a $20,000 reward in the case for Brittany Ann Locklear. And if you have information that can lead to resolution, you can contact the SBI. It's 919-662-4500 or the Hope County Sheriff's Office at 910-875-5111. And I also wanted to mention, if you are at all interested in learning more about the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina, there's a really awesome professor named um, Dr. Melinda Maynor-Lowry. 
and she's a professor in North Carolina. And she's written two really cool books. Um, she's Lumbee on the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. One's called uh, Lumbee Indians and American Struggle. I think I got that title right. If you Google it, it'll come up just about right. And the other one is called Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South. And it's a really interesting book about the Lumbee tribe and segregation and sort of the interplay there. So those are both really cool books. Thanks for sharing that. I am going to present the last case that we're going to cover today. This case is something that has stuck with me for a long, long time for a few reasons. One of the reasons is because it happened here in the area where I live. Um, I'm not, not in the same town, but pretty close. It's also in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a small, small town called Newark, California. And I think one of the reasons why when it happened, it kind of caught my attention and stayed with me is because they had pictures of a victim whose name was Gwen Araujo in the newspapers and things that's being reported on. And I remember looking at that picture of her and thinking, that's every girl I know. That's every girl I grew up with. That's every girl I went to high school with. She was Latina. She was 17 years old when this happened. And she was just the typical girl looked like friends that I knew when I was, you know, a teen and, you know, into music and makeup and, you know, wearing trendy clothes and just being a teenage girl. When this happened in 2002, she was a 17-year-old transgender teen. Um, She was murdered on October 4th, 2002. And Like I said, this was in uh, Newark, California, a small town in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's located, just to give you an idea, between San Francisco and San Jose, and I live in San Jose. Gwen uh, Araujo was born on February 24th, 1985. She came out as transgender in 1999 when she was 14 years old. At that time, she began using the name Gwen. And the reason she picked Gwen, because her favorite singer was Gwen Stefani. She also went by other uh, nicknames. She went by Wendy. She went by Lita. And the people connected to this case knew her by Lita. Um, Her parents were Edward Araujo Sr. and her mom's name was Sylvia Guerrero. Uh, Gwen's parents divorced before she was a year old. She was very close to her mother and her, her sister and her aunt. One of the things her mom would say about Gwen is that she was a very, like she knew who she was. And she was also very headstrong she was going to do what she felt was best for her. Whether that was uh, at the time when she was a young teen um, beginning to dress as and present as female, knowing that that was going to be an issue with other students, you know, in that time, in that place, and of that age. But she was not deterred by that. She was bullied. She was called names, but she still continued to be who she was. And her mom said she just knew who she was and that's who she was always going to be. That was, you know, that was kind of her life. Now, one of the things I will say, because, you know, being Latina myself and growing up in this area as well, I would say that at that time, even though it was maybe not as challenging in some ways as maybe 10 years before or 20 years earlier, it was still pretty difficult. And also in the community. I was thinking about the election recently and people are talking about Latinos vote Democratic and stuff. And it's not exactly true. There's a large portion, of course, that do. But there's also a very big portion of Latino community that's very conservative, you know, Catholic, just conservative in their political way of being. um, You can say old fashioned. And her mother does say it was difficult because where she grew up was there was a large Latino population as well. 
um, which of course she was part of. So that was an added layer of, you know, having to deal with maybe perceptions of people in that community. So by the time she got to high school, she had left her regular high school and ended up going to what they call an alternative high school. It's a smaller school, caters to kids that maybe have uh, fallen behind academically or for what other reasons. By the time of her death, she had basically dropped out of school. One of the things that she loved going out and socializing with other teens and young adults, and she was, of course, underage, and, but she would go to house parties and she would you know, hang out with friends at their homes. I don't know about other areas of the country, but in, in California, when you're in this area, when you're a teen and you're underage, you go to house parties. That's what you do is you, somebody has a house and maybe there's somebody who's a little bit older and maybe the parents aren't around or they've rented this house. Somebody's able to buy booze or whatever is going to happen. And everybody kind of congregates in that area. So in early September 2002, Gwen met a, a group of, of friends, but she was not well known to this group. So at this time, she had met one of the, the girls who was a girlfriend of, of one of the young men. They only knew her as Gwen. They didn't know that she was trans. She didn't share that. Um, that was something that she had determined that she you know, didn't have to and didn't want to and wasn't going to. And she just had friends. She had boy, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, um, acquaintances. And uh, people knew of her, like you know, Gwen was around, or Lita, I guess they were calling her Lita. But they didn't know her well. They didn't know her family. They hadn't gone to school with her, any of those kind of things. So basically, like a young person, you go out, you meet new people, and uh, that's kind of your first acquaintance with them. So she met this group of people. There were four men that were part of this group. One's name was Michael Magison. He was 22. And then there was a, a group of brothers. But the one that would come to play into, in this story, his name was Jose Merrill. He was 22 as well. Jason Cazares was also 22. And the youngest was a man named Jaron Neighbors. He was 19. So she met these uh, guys through some other girl that she was acquainted with. So in early 2002, they were hanging out after they had had, you know, kind of a little party together, had been together, you know, kind of socializing. She left and one of the, the guys named Jared Neighbors posed a question to the rest of the group saying, quote, could Gwen be a dude? So this was already posed early in September. They were already asking this question. It seems that nobody asked Gwen this question, though. Like they were basically discussing this amongst themselves or it came out or, and I think it was kind of early on, it sounded like it was just kind of, you know, laughed off, like whatever, you know. So she would meet this group of people several times over the next uh, month where they would get together, hang out, uh, go to house parties, party at somebody's house. So later on, when she met up with this group, she had a sexual, sexual uh, relations with both Michael Magison and at another time, with one of the other uh, men, which was Jose Merrill. Again, she didn't reveal about her trans status and they didn't ask her that question. In late September, they continued to have these discussions amongst themselves about whether or not Gwen might be a male. So at that point, one of the men remarked that, quote, something bad could happen to her if she was not a female, unquote. So this has been something, like I said, has been talked about for a while. Again, nobody asked her this question. On October 3rd, Gwen is invited to a party at the home that's rented by Jose Merrill, which is one of the four 
men that she's acquainted with and his older brother, Paul. So they rented this house. Apparently, it sounds like just these two young men rented this house. It wasn't like other parents or people there. So at this house party, there was over a dozen other people there that night, including the other men, Michael Madison, and neighbors, Cazares, and Paul Merrill, Jose's older brother, had a girlfriend named Nicole Brown, and she was there. So for some reason, Jose Merrill started making comments again about whether Gwen was a male and made the comment that came out later in court records that said, quote, I swear, is this, if this is an effing man, I'm going to kill him. She ain't going to leave. Now, the older, the older ones that are over 21 took off, went to a club and came back later when the party was still going on, but there was just a couple of people left there. So they came back after midnight. From records, it shows that everybody was drinking. These guys that came back had been drinking, um, as had Gwen and, and Nicole and everybody else. At this point... Now, Gwen's just there, you know, hanging out. When Michael Madison comes back from the club, at some point early in the hours of the morning, he basically confronts Gwen and asks her to reveal her sex. And he asks to touch her genitals. Oh, she refused. He then takes her into the bathroom, but he didn't do anything further at that point. I guess he was talking to her or something. Witnesses say that she was very intoxicated at this point but she still refused to allow him to touch her. This is the point where Nicole Brown, the girlfriend of Paul Merrill, comes into the bathroom. She proceeds to lift Gwen's skirt and screams out, announcing, quote, oh my God, it's a man, unquote. At this point, Gwen tries to leave the house, but was blocked by two of the men. Jose Merrill is throwing a fit. Um, according to Nicole Brown's testimony, said that he's crying and saying, I can't be effing gay. So there's some different stories around this. Nicole Brown later on tries to say that she tries to help get Gwen out of the house and away from the situation. Also, Jose Merrill's younger brother, who, like I said, was a young teen, also would say in testimony that he tried to walk her out, but these men blocked, not allowing her to leave. After she is now brought back into the house or, you know, is not allowed to leave the house, Madison then starts grabbing at her clothes to trying to reveal her body to them. She's trying to fight him off. He then punches her. Now, Gwen is very small. She is only 95 pounds. She's very petite. Um, she falls to the ground. The others now join in and um, start assaulting her. They are hitting her with fists and also other objects. Sometime during this or right before this happened, and the testimony is different in a couple of different cases, Nicole then wakes her boyfriend, Paul, who had been asleep. Nicole, Paul, and Paul's younger brother, who was there, Emmanuel, all leave the house. And they drive to Nicole's house, which is about a 20-minute drive away. Now, neither after leaving the house or upon arriving at Nicole's house, did anybody call for help for Gwen? So she's left alone in this house with now they're the four men and Gwen. She was now unconscious at some point or merely so. Two of the men, neighbors and Cazares, leave in the other man's truck to go to Cazares' house to retrieve shovels. Now this at this point is premeditated if it wasn't before. Yeah. When they return, Gwen was still unconscious 
At some point, she's starting to come to or something happens, but they start attacking her again, possibly when she started to come to. Neighbors and Gazeras told the others to knock her out and continue to physically assault her. Um, she's now bound by her feet and wrists and moved to another location in the home. At this point, testimony of all the perpetrators in this crime now are different because she was found to be strangled and also died from blood force trauma to the head. Magison and neighbors would later accuse each other of strangling her. Neighbors would accuse Cazares and Madison would accuse neighbors of striking the fatal blow because the autopsy would determine that she had died from strangulation associated with blunt force trauma. So they're trying to point the fingers at everybody at who actually killed her, which they were all, you know, involved in the murder. Her body was then placed in the bed of Madison's truck and the foreman then drove her body. Now, remember, they already got the shovels. So this was planned. Drove her body four hours northeast um, up going towards Lake Tahoe. So this is like hilly terrain way up, you know, it's far. They took her all the way up to El Dorado County into a national forest and buried her body in a shallow grave and before returning home. All four of them were there. By the next day when when we failed to return home, her mother called the police and reported her missing. Uh, the report was not followed up immediately, partly um, because it was said that she had a history of staying out with friends overnight, didn't always come home, you know, right away. And her mother believes also because she was trans and her mother let them know that. Again, this is a small community. A lot of people were at that party that night. Some of them before, you know, the attack happened, they, they heard threats. They heard these men starting to make these comments about her and become angry So rumors started to fly uh, around the community and a rumor reached Gwen's aunt later that week about a girl that had been killed after a party and buried in Lake Tahoe. So Gwen's aunt then um, called the police to report these rumors on October 9th. So that was a, you know, less than a week later. Meanwhile, a friend of Jared Neighbors, Jared Neighbors will be one who will do the talking and basically this is where the all of the testimony comes from because he talked not to just he talked to a few people to be honest a friend of Jared neighbors called the police to report that neighbors had confessed what he'd done to him two days after the murder they asked the friend to wear a wire to record him saying this which he did he told everybody who was there what they did and what happened to her and so they had this information So on October 15th is when Neighbors was confronted by police with this recorded conversation, and he thankfully agrees to lead them to Gwen's body, which he does. Her body is recovered, and police then arrested uh, Madison, Neighbors, and uh, Jose, and Paul Merrill, which is the brother who left before the attack. But Paul would be released after both uh, Nicole Brown and Emmanuel Merrill confirmed that he had left the house with them and they were able to verify that. So on October 17th, Madison and neighbors and Jose Merrill were arrested and charged with murder, but Jason Cazares um, still hadn't been arrested. He wasn't found. The others didn't give him up. They didn't tell him, you know, his name. Nicole didn't know his last name. She only knew him as Jason. So they were still trying to figure out who is this guy and where is he? But while he was in jail, again, neighbors just keeps talking. He wrote to his girlfriend in which he named Jason Cazares and said that he and the others had come up with a quote, Sopranos type plan 
to kill the bitch and get rid of her body, end quote. Um, this letter was intercepted and Cazares was arrested on November 19th. So now they had his name. They were able to pick him up. The trial began on February 24th, 2003. Neighbors was cooperating with the police. He pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and promised to testify against the others in exchange for 11, an 11-year prison sentence, um, which was he was sentenced to in August of 2006 with credit first time served. So he really only had to do a couple more years before he was released. Uh, the first trial began in 2004. There was going to be two trials. Prosecutors at this trial misgendered uh, Gwen and insisted on using her birth name uh, throughout the trial. And uh, that was something her mother really objected to. So Madison's attorney argued that his client should be charged only with manslaughter at worst. And this is where we get to that uh, trans panic, gay panic defense stuff. Mm-hmm. He says that his client was, quote, shocked beyond reason upon learning that, quote, he'd had sex with a man. And neighbors went, again, he's giving the testimony of what happened. But in his testimony, neighbors would say that his friends had been raped by Araujo because he did not come clean with being what he really was, he said. This is quotes by him. And that they had been forced into homosexual sex. And that my definition of rape is being forced into sex. And when the, the prosecutor asked him how exactly were they forced, he said through deception. The first trial ended in a mistrial because the jury couldn't reach a unanimous decision for the three men. They weren't able to decide whether it was premeditated or not. And both uh, Nicole Brown, who testified, and Jared Neighbors were viewed as unreliable witnesses. So that kind of muddled things up as well. But the prosecutors quickly took it to a second trial. And that started in 2005. But one thing that Sylvia Guerrero, uh, Gwen's mother, did was the day after the first trial ended in a mistrial, she filed to have Gwen's name legally changed to Gwen Amber Rose Araujo. Amber Rose because that was the name she had picked out before Gwen was born. The attorneys would now be required to use her legal name and female pronouns in the new trial. The first, well, three defendants were retried on first-degree murder trial with hate crime enhancements. Of course, during the trial, all three pointed the finger at each other for the murder and also at neighbors. Of course, he'd already you know, been given his sentence. This attorney was Tony Sarah, who is, I would say, kind of high-profile attorney. He had represented Black Panther leader Huey Newton. He had um, also represented Sibionese Liberation Army members back in the 70s. He's also represented Hell's Angels and Chinatown crime boss Raymond Shripoy Chow. He became Jason Cazares's attorney. Tony Sarah would describe the men of being in a, quote, classic state of heat and passion and should only be charged with manslaughter. This time, the jury was given the option of finding for first degree, second degree, or even manslaughter for Jose Merrill. First degree or second degree for the other two, but manslaughter in the case of Jose Merrill. They all kind of looked at Madison as the main, mainly responsible for her death and asked for a verdict of first degree murder in his case. So the jury deliberated for a week before coming back with its verdicts. Uh, Madison and Merrill were found guilty of second degree murder, but without the hate crime enhancement. They deadlocked on Cazares, voting nine to three in favor of convicting him of murder. And in order to avoid a third trial, Cazares was allowed to plead no contest to manslaughter. Cazares was sentenced to six years in prison with credit for time served. Madison and Merrill were sentenced to 15 years to life 
Now, Merrill had always expressed regret for his part in this crime, including to Gwen's family. And he did so again here when he was sentenced. He expressed deep regret and apologized to her family. Madison, on the other hand, was unremorseful and was angry about the verdict. So in 2016, Jose Merrill was was actually granted parole. And this was with the support of uh, Gwen's mother. She actually spoke up for him. Michael Madison had a parole hearing in that same year, 2016, but soon after the hearing began, he stated that he was not ready for release and needed more drug and alcohol treatment, which was kind of surprising. But that sometimes that is a strategy because if they finish their sentence and they are released, they're not under any other restrictions. You know what I mean? So if they get out on parole, they're still subject to lots of restrictions while they're on the outside. Otherwise, oh, I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's a strategy. So I wonder if that wasn't a strategy, but Sylvia Guerrero had also expressed her opposition to his release and he came up for parole again in 2019, but he was denied. Uh, Jason Cazares was released from prison in 2012 and neighbors was released sometime before 2016. that came out of this case, well, one of the things I think I wanted to say is that people think San Francisco Bay Area, very accepting or liberal or, you know, gay friendly, whatever you want to call it. Of course, not everywhere. There's pockets, yes, but not everywhere. So I think that's kind of a stereotype. People think that California is very liberal and it's such a big state and there's so many different areas And some are very conservative and some are mixed and some are very diverse and some are not. I mean, there's just so many different ways of experiencing, you know, living here in California. But one of the things I think that did happen in this, I guess we call more of the South Bay area, is more awareness about, you know, trans issues. It was just such a a terrible, horrible crime against this tiny little girl. It was something that really reverberated in this area. Her mother really did suffer after learning about this this terrible murder and going through the trial and everything else. She suffered from very severe PTSD, which affected her memory. It was just so traumatic for her. But meanwhile, during this time, she was also still advocating for her daughter and for the trans community as well. And that became very, very important to her. So Gwen's murder also spurred the first trans march. And this happened in 2003 which I didn't know was had been around that long because it's now an annual event that kicks off Pride Week here in San Francisco, which the Pride Week in San Francisco is one of the largest LGBTQ plus celebrations in the whole country. On the first anniversary of Gwen's murder, the Horizons Foundation created a nonprofit they called the Gwen Araujo Memorial Fund for Transgender Education. And this was to support school-based programs in the Bay Area to promote understanding of trans issues and support the community. Gwen's mother and some of her other relatives, her sister and others, became frequent speakers. They would go out to middle and high school events and talk about Gwen and talk about understanding and just raising awareness for other students to really also as kind of part of it was an anti-bullying campaign as well. And there was actually a movie made of Gwen's story on Lifetime that came out in June of 2006. I've only seen it aired once or twice. I actually looked for it one time because I remembered about the case and I wanted to to watch it again. It was kind of hard to find, but it was called 
a girl like me, the Gwen Arahu story. And she was also, which I haven't seen, but I would, I will definitely look up. Her story was also the subject of a 2007 documentary called Trained in the Ways of Men. The description of that documentary says it aimed to debunk the so-called gay or trans panic defense, which is something I wanted to talk about because that came up in our discussion earlier. This has has evolved (laughs) over time, for sure. I think it was pretty common in crimes against the LGBTQ plus community for defense attorneys to use when something happened where there was some kind of attack. Whether or not there was even anything to that, it was just dragged out as a defense early on, and that became a real issue. After Gwen's murder, and and, uh, there was a couple of others in the area as well, that uh, our governor, who at the time, if you can believe, was Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> which is still hard for me. <laughs> I know, every time I was, I know when we were talking, I look back at that and I was like, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah it's it's yeah. just weird. Yeah. Well, we're California. I'm, you know, I'm not going to make uh, <laughs> any excuses. We were a little strange here. But anyway, he was the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. He signed the Gwen Araujo Justice for Victims Act in 2006. And that's a law that limited the use by criminal defendants of this defense. After that, jurors would be instructed not to let bias influence their decision, including, quote, bias against the victim based on his his or her gender identity or sexual orientation, end quote. So that was a start. But there was, you know, there was more that that evolved after that. Of course, we're still trying to do better with um, these kinds of of things that happen in court. I don't know whether these kind of laws are on the books in other states. That's something I have to... I can t- Well, I can tell you that we just in Georgia got a hate crime law in June. Okay. <laughs> Only in June and not even a gay panic defense law. We just got a hate crime bill okay. in June after Ahmaud Arbery was murdered. And we were one of the few states that didn't have one. And that, you know, includes gender and sexual orientation. It does not specifically um, say gender identity in the law, but mm-hmm. it, we did finally get one. Um, I don't know how widespread the um, laws are in terms of like what Schwarzenegger put into place. Mm-hmm. I do know that the gay panic defense has fallen out of favor, but I mean, you can see the trans panic um, in the media regularly. You know, I mean, look at the bathroom stuff that was going on over the past couple of years. You know, that's classic trans panic. One of the things that kind of struck me, too, was should these murderers have been found guilty of first degree murder? I think so. I think there was enough there to state that there was. I don't know why that was so difficult to come to that conclusion. Once again, like I like legality is my weakness. Mm-hmm. But based on what I understand about premeditation, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, it seems very clearly premeditated for weeks. And then, you know, the continual premeditation of leaving the scene to go get shovels right. and coming back. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was one of the things, even at that point when they're trying to say, oh, they were so shocked that this, but they had been talking about it for weeks. Again, like I said, they didn't ask her, you know, they wanted to know, they could have simply asked her. You know, and maybe she would have told them or maybe not. Maybe she said it's none of your damn business and they could have moved on with their life. So I don't I don't buy it that they panicked that night. 
No, they didn't panic that night. Um, I I don't believe it. I think they got themselves worked up. I think that they probably knew that she was trans. I think that they got more transphobic and homophobic, probably together. Right. Talking about it and they hyped themselves up. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that it's that it's that cultural, it's that toxic stuff. Right. It's that toxic transphobia and homophobia. I think that they hype themselves up. It's like people will always say, well, why didn't she disclose? Right. I would love for someone to tell me at what point was it safe for that poor child to disclose? There was not a safe point for her to disclose. Right. Not only is that an incredibly personal decision, not only is it a, a situation that someone like me who cisgender can't understand, Mm-hmm. Right. Because there's so many vulnerabilities that go along with that. But it's also this question that comes up a lot. Like um, we have on the fall line content readers who read stuff for us that it's like outside of our lived experience, you know, mm-hmm. um, and like we'll read for stuff like um, if we're covering a trans case, for instance. But one thing that I think about a lot is we've covered um, people who have been murdered for being trans, but they're most often murdered by their partners. They're not murdered by strangers. Right. And something that comes up a lot in that case is internalized transphobia and homophobia that's coming from the outside, not inside. You know, it's not a surprise. It's fear of the outside world finding out. It's been the case in some of the cases that we've covered. It's been demanding to, you know what I mean? Like demanding to be acknowledged as a partner to society. And that has led to death, you know, that, that kind of stuff. It's this fear of what the outside's going to say. That's what I was going to say. So it's like, it's not so much that they're judging their partner or that person. It's they're afraid of being judged by others. And three of the cases we've covered that were murders and all three of those cases um, that I'm thinking of where it was partner violence or it seems to have been partner violence. It was people who were aware their partners were trans and seemed to have committed. I mean, these are unsolved murders. You know, but based on witness statements and stuff, seem to have been afraid that their partner, their trans partner, was going to disclose their relationship or was asking for their relationship to be public. Do we have to just wait for time to pass for things to change? <laughs> I mean, I think that's part of it, but I don't know. The way that I think about it is besides like making podcasts, right? <laughs> is I don't know. I try to have conversations with people just one-on-one, like, even if I don't feel like it, even if they're awkward or uncomfortable, but how do you change the world except by talking to people? I mean, you vote, right? You do things like that. You make podcasts, but maybe you talk to your uncle that has like the opinions that aren't so hot Mm -hmm. rather than just rolling your eyes. Like maybe you talk to him, maybe you talk to your kids about stuff instead of not talking about it because it's awkward. You know, I mean, I certainly have no magic answer, but that's how I tackle it in my own family mm-hmm. and kind of hope that it will, things get better too, you know? And I think that grows empathy. I think I bet when you covered the women of Juarez, which is what I always tell people to go listen to first, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's my favorite series you did. I bet people learn a lot. You know? I learned I, a lot. <laughs> yeah, me too. I learned about this whole system that I didn't know about. Right. And I went through like four or five emotional roller coasters, <laughs> you know, and like, and that, and that gives me like, not only like education, but this other little piece of like empathy in my self that I didn't have before. And that's just one more piece of it, I think. 
I want to thank Laura for being such an awesome guest host this week. Make sure to check out both of her podcasts, The Fall Line and One Strange Thing on your favorite podcast app. I've included links in the show notes. And at the end of this episode, you can listen to a sample of what you'll hear on One Strange Thing. I've also included links in the show notes to the resources and books we talked about in this episode, as well as some other resources you might find helpful regarding the topics we discussed. There's just one episode left of Once Upon a Crime this year, and that will be out next week. But there's also a bonus Patreon episode this month, along with much more bonus content you can access when you become a member at patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music for the show was provided by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. We all enjoy a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about bizarre events that unfolded in our country's local newspapers but never made it much further than that. No matter the place or the people, One Strange Thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.